Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and welcome to Christ the King this morning. So start with a question. If you could had only three words with which to describe God, which three words would you pick? Said differently, if you just taking a vast a survey of the vast Bible, uh, what three characteristics of God would you think are most important? Would you prioritize above every other? Three words. Someone asks you, what kind of God do you believe in? How do you respond? You only have three words. Well, the Nicene Creed and the creeds in general provide a very satisfying answer to that question. The creeds say, we believe in God, and they identify three characteristics. He is God the Father. He is God the Almighty. He is God the Creator of heaven and earth. This Sunday, we begin a new sermon series in which we'll look at the creeds. Every Sunday, one phrase from the creeds. Before we get to the phrase for this morning, which is God the Father, the Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, just a little bit about creeds in general. So I grew up with the creeds. I, I was part of my worship. I grew up in a church setting much like this one. So uh, saying the creeds was just a regular part of my day. And I feel like many of us, that's probably true. Many of us are from a background, maybe similar to this, and creeds were a normal part of your life. Great. Uh, that's very helpful. Uh, the challenge of that is that you can underappreciate uh, the creeds. Say, for instance, you had a beautiful piece of art in your house, Vincent van Gogh's Sunflowers, and uh, it's in, hanging in your hall. And because you, familiarity just breeds familiarity. So you never stop to look and say, oh, wow. I've got a Vincent van Gogh painting in my hallway. That can be what happens to us with the creeds. We stand when we're supposed to stand, we say what we're supposed to say, and we never really reflect on what it is that we're saying. Perhaps that's true of you. I know it's certainly true of me. So for some of us, we may be overly familiar. Some of us may be unfamiliar. Maybe you're not from a liturgical church uh, setting. Maybe you're not from a church setting at all, and you may think, huh, Creeds. It seems sort of dry and dusty, doesn't it? Uh, so I heard that tradition is the living, the living faith of the, of the dead. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is good. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's bad. Uh, and sometimes when we say the creeds, it can just sound kind of crusty, like... Do we really need to use these doctrinal statements? It just sounds sort of old-fashioned. And for us... For some of us, we may think, huh, creeds, we're just skeptical of them. Can God really be defined by words? Is it really important that we say these words? Let me just argue that uh, hypothetical position, if that's where you find yourself thinking about the creeds. I think creeds, look, anything that's really complicated, we summarize with bullet points. Uh, complicated news stories, we summarize. And I think religion is always creedal. I don't care, I, don't, I cannot think of a religion that is not creedal in some way. Uh, the five pillars of Islam, that's a creed, five summary statements of what is most important. important. And I think every Christian faith is a creedal faith. Even if you're from a non-liturgical, from a church that doesn't say creeds. For instance, my children went to a, a non-liturgical, a, 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 a great church in the area, and they came back from a vacation Bible school singing the ABCs of Christianity. A, and I won't sing it for you, I'll just say it for you. A, admit to God that you're a sinner and repent. B, believe that Jesus is God's own son. C, confess in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. A, B, C. What is that? It's a creed. It's a summary statement of what we think is most important and most vital 
for the faith. Creeds are inevitable. And so this series, we're going to look at creeds. We're going to look at one statement per Sunday. And whether you are over-familiar with the creeds and therefore underappreciate them, like myself, or whether you are unfamiliar with the creeds and therefore skeptical of them, I think we all have something to learn from this important summary of the Christian faith. Our first line, I believe, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. Let's spend a little bit of time thinking about that statement. We believe in God. That statement in and of itself is not too remarkable. Most people in our irreligious society still believe in God. While commitment to a particular religion is falling, commitment to a particular God is falling, belief in God in general is still holding steady at 80%. People don't have a problem with God. People just don't like a particular God. One person was asked on one of these surveys, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Well, what kind of God do you believe in? Well, I believe in just any ordinary old God. (laughs) And I could, unfortunately, I could see myself and some of us answering, what kind of God? I just believe in the ordinary God. You know, God. The creeds don't leave us there. The creeds tell us what the the type of God that we believe in and does so in three important words. The creeds define our relationship to God primarily as a fatherly, a paternal relationship. It describes God's character primarily as almighty. And it describes God's work as primarily creative. He is a creator of heaven and earth. Let's look at each one of those attributes. In most Sundays, we'll look at just one passage and explore that passage. For this series, at least for this Sunday, we'll look at a handful, three passages, each of which relate to one of those uh, ideas. So let's start with Father. When you pray, this is from Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 6, a very well-known passage, our gospel lesson. You may want to turn there. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. God's primary relationship, not his only relationship with you and me, is paternal, fatherly. Now, I have many relationships with my children. You have many relationships with your parents. If you have children, you inhabit many relationships with them, many types of relationships. Uh, I am my children's uh, employer. They get an allowance from me. I am my children's, uh, sometimes they'll take a loan from me. Not a large loan, but something to go to 7-Eleven. I am at that stage, I am their banker. Uh, I am their provider. There I wear a number of types of hats that define my relationship with my children. However, there is one primary relationship that supersedes and is more definitive than all of those, and that is I am dad. I am their father. The Bible identifies one primary relationship which is more determinative than any other as we think about our relationship with God. God is our Father. There is uh, some conversation afoot to think of, can we, can we think of alternative names for God? Uh, God the Father sounds a little too patriarchal. And so some suggestions have been, maybe we could define God as the rock. You know, God is defined as a rock. Uh, You are my rock and my refuge. Uh, What about a mother? God is, uh, God our mother. God has maternal characteristics. He desires to shelter his children under the shadow of his wings. But the determinative 
defini- the, the, the determinative relationship that God desires for each one of us is fatherly. Yes, I'm my children's banker. Yes, I'm their provider. Yes, God is our rock. Yes, God ha- is our creator, our provider. But there is one determinative relationship, and that is he is father. What are the implications? What are the implications of God's fatherly relationship with us? The implications are you can trust him. And this is explicit in our, our gospel lesson. We are not to approach God or pray to God as others do. We're not to pray like the heathens who just pile words upon words. We're not to pray like the hypocrites who uh, pray to be seen by others. We're not to pray like them because we don't believe like them. We believe that God is our father because we believe that God is our father. We trust him to know what we need before we ask so we can pray in secret. We can pray with simplicity. We can pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Pray simply to your trusting, your good father. You can trust him. God is not just an ordinary God. He is God the father. Next, his character is almighty. Now, the creeds use that word almighty as an all-encompassing word to catch all of God's superlative qualities. So the word almighty is a catch-all for God's superlative qualities. Remember what a superlative is? They probably don't have these in yearbooks anymore, but in my yearbook in 1992, they had superlatives. So... The most likely to succeed, the best dressed, the most whatever, were always in the back of the yearbook. The word almighty is, captures all of God's superlative qualities. Let me mention a few. God is superlative in his knowledge and in his intelligence. He is, the big word is, he is omniscient. He knows all. And his omniscience is especially directed at you and me. God's omniscience relates to us. Psalm 139, for instance, says, Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You know everything about me. He knows everything about you. He is omniscient. I just noticed this in our worship service. Did you note how we begin? We say, Almighty God... And then God's almighty character is tied to his intimate knowledge of us. To you, all hearts are open. All desires are, you know everything. His superlative knowledge is one aspect of his almighty character. Secondly, he is omnibenevolent. Or to use a slang phrase, he is all good. Perhaps you know the story of the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, a fantasy stories in which uh, Aslan is analogous to the, the Christ figure. One of the little girls in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, learns that she is to meet Aslan, the lion. And she says, oh, says Susan, I thought Aslan was a man. <laughs> He's a lion? Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. <laughs> She's talking to Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver says, safe? No, 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 of course not. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He is all good. 
is omnibenevolence, is one aspect of his almighty character. Omniscient, omnibenevolent, finally, omnipotent, all-powerful. I stumbled upon this book by uh, Bill Bryson, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Uh, I don't think that Bill Bryson has much theological uh, background, but he uh, writes, he describes the beginning of the universe according to the most accurate scientific information available. So this is what he writes. He says, a proton is an infinitesimally small part of an atom, which is itself, of course, a very insubstantial thing. So protons are exceedingly microscopic, to say the least. Now, if you can imagine shrinking one of those protons down to a billionth of its normal size into a space so small that it would make a proton look enormous, now pack into that tiny, tiny space about an ounce of matter, you are now ready to start the universe. And so from nothing, the universe begins. In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory, much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavenly dimensions. The first lively seconds produce gravity and the other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million billion miles across and growing fast. There's a lot of heat now, 10 billion degrees of it. Of it and in three minutes, 90% of all the matter there is or will ever be has been produced. We now have a universe. It is a place of the most wondrous and gratifying possibility possibilities and beautiful too. And it was all done in about the time it takes to make a sandwich. Now the author's speculative story is informed by science, but doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis chapter one in which God said, let there be light. And there was. And out of the darkness, all that ever was and ever will be sprang into existence. His omnipotence is yet another attribute of his almighty character. He is all good. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. Or as the creeds say, he is, he is almighty. So what? In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham encounters the almighty God. Did you see how God introduces himself? I am God the almighty. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And in verse 3, Abraham fell to his face. And whether it is Moses who encounters Almighty God hiding in the cleft of a rock, or the prophet Isaiah who sees the train of God's robe from the courtroom, or the disciple Peter who encounters the Almighty God in a fishing boat, or the arresting soldiers in John's gospel who fall back in amazement, as they encounter the almighty power of Christ, the reaction is always the same. Those who experience just a hint of God's almighty character when he just flexes just a little bit, the reaction is the same. They fall in fear. He is not an ordinary God. He is God the almighty. He is good in his fatherly care. He is to be feared and worshiped in his almighty character. Third and final, his work. His work is one of creation. 
We believe in God, almighty creator of heaven and earth. Psalm 104 gives reason for our praise and worship, or Psalm 104 begins with praise and worship. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then for the preceding next 34 34 verses, the psalm describes why we are to praise God. We are to praise him for the glory of his creation. Having encountered the, having recounted the wisdom and the vastness of God's, uh, the vastness of the creativity of God's creation, Psalm 104 ends in verse 35 again with praise and worship. He is our Father, we trust Him. He is Almighty, we revere Him. He is our Creator, we worship Him. Putting these three attributes listed in the Nicene Creed, his creative work, his almighty character, his fatherly care, these things inspire and guide our worship of him. I think that is the implication for us. His character, his care, his creative work inspire and guide our worship of him. Psalm 95 That great psalm which has guided the worship of this church begins, Come, let us worship the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Why? Because God is a great God. In his hands are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. He is God the Almighty, but he's not only God the Almighty. He tends, cares for us like a shepherd caring for his sheep. Listen to his voice today. Because we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's not only great, he is good like a father. I read that the definition of idolatry is to entertain thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The first step down for any follower of Christ occurs when we surrender our high opinion of God. Our God is not just an ordinary God. It is the God of the Bible enshrined in the creeds, God the Father, God the Almighty, God the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'll end this week with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Because God's almighty character, his creative power, his fatherly goodness may leave us with a bit of a disconnect. Because every day we encounter things contrary to his goodness, his greatness, his fatherly care. We encounter sin, we encounter sickness, and we encounter death. So the cliffhanger we end with is what will our almighty father do with the sin and the sadness in the world? Next week, we will see that in God's omniscience, his wisdom, in his omnipotence, his great power, in his tender fatherly care, he will solve the problem of sin and sadness by the gift of his son, who was made man, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. But that, friends, is for next week.